You're listening to a sermon from Providence Baptist Church in Kansas City, Missouri. For more information about our church, please visit church-kc.com or come and visit on a Sunday morning. Sunday School for All Ages starts at 9 a.m. and our worship begins at 1015. Thanks for listening. Today we're going to be at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 25. So we'll go right on down to the end of the chapter. So we're going to look at the second half of 1 Peter chapter 2 today. This is, a, I think you will find a challenging text in, in many ways. God's Word here is going to challenge us as God's people. Some of you may leave today angry and want to uh, take me to the, the edge of the town and the brow of the hill and throw me off the cliff. But if, that, if you are so inclined to do that, would you give me a parachute? for the end of the service. So, in any case, I just invite you to hear uh, what the Word of God has to say to you as a child of God uh, this morning. So, uh, with that out of the way, uh, with that teaser, uh, let's read God's Word. Beginning in verse 11, if you don't have a Bible, the words will be up here uh, on the screen. Peter writes, Beloved I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sinned and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strain like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. If you agree with these words, would you say amen? amen. Father, thank you for your holy and your precious words. They are right and they are true. 
and we are to live by them. Father, I pray for myself in this moment, and I pray that you would give me the ability to to rightly divide your word here this morning, and that I would do so with, with passion and conviction and boldness, but also, of course, in a spirit of love. May we all hear what you have us, would have us to hear and, and, and apply to our lives today from this text here in 1 Peter. I pray all of these things in Jesus' wonderful and precious name. Amen. So many... Many years ago, a, a group of Western Christians were traveling through the Middle East, and they, they heard about a, a devout, old, wise saint who was living nearby, and they thought, you know, we sure would like to, to meet this guy, this old, revered saint. And so they took the time out of their trip to go find this man, and when they found him, they, they were kind of surprised to see how this man was living. These were Western Christians, affluent Christians. And when they, they found this man, they, they found him living in a, in a mud hut with very few possessions. And so one of these visitors was kind of a little surprised and, and just kind of blurted out, hey man, where, where's your furniture? <laughs> where, where's your furnishings? And, and, and the man replied very quickly and he said, well, well where is yours? where's your furniture, buddy? And the man was kind of taken aback by that a little bit, and he thought about it for a minute. And then he said, well, well, my, my furniture's at home, of course. I, I don't take it with me when I'm traveling. And the old, aged, revered saint responded by saying, so am I. So am I. In other words, I'm traveling too. This is not actually my home, uh, my stuff, my belongings, my possessions, my treasures, they're not here. They're not on this earth because this earth is not my home. And so this man rightly understood himself to be a sojourner. And that's exactly how Peter addresses his audience in verse 11. You will see he says, beloved, Beloved of God, those of you who are loved by God, I, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. I mentioned this at the very beginning of this series, but I'll mention it again. God's people of every generation, I believe, according to the Bible, must rightly see themselves as sojourners and exiles. That's how Abraham viewed himself. We read about that earlier in the book of Hebrews. All right, so this world is not our home. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven from where we eagerly await our Savior. Somebody say amen. Now, you may not like this. We do this every once in a while, but I think this is a fun exercise, and now is an appropriate time for us to do it. So I want you to turn to your neighbor, and I want you to say to your neighbor, this world is not your home, okay? We got to believe that. As children of God, as disciples of Jesus Christ, this world is not our home. We are sojourners. We are just passing through. Since this world is not our home, and since we are eagerly awaiting and longing for the return of the Lord, Peter says we should abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against our soul. 
I don't know about you, but I think the war imagery here is actually very striking. It's very easy to just kind of pass over that and glance over it and, and not really pay any attention to it, but it's there for a reason, and it really does get my, my attention. And it, it reminds us that we have an enemy. There's an in, enemy out there who is seeking to destroy us. I, I think this enemy of ours is trying, first of all, to destroy the kingdom that we are citizens of. He's trying to destroy the kingdom of heaven. But I think it's also fair to say that he's seeking to destroy you personally. I, I think he's seeking to have you renounce your citizenship in the kingdom of heaven because ultimately this adversary of ours, he cannot win the war that he's fighting. And he knows that. But I think he can win individual battles. I, I think the Bible makes that kind of clear. I think church history makes that clear. He can't win the war, but he can win individual battles. So it's, it's kind of like the United States in the Vietnam War. I have heard it said that we didn't lose a single battle in that war. We had superior firepower, <laughs> superior military, didn't lose a single battle, but we didn't win the war. And so our adversary, our enemy, he's fighting a war he cannot win. But I think he can win individual battles. And I think this is why Peter says later in the letter in 1 Peter chapter 5, you're at, you know the verse, right? I've mentioned it to you before. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's what he's doing. He wants you to renounce, ultimately, your heavenly citizenship and put down roots in this world. He wants you to give in to the passions of the flesh, the passions of worldly, selfish desires. It's the, the spirit of the age. Live for yourself. Gratify yourself. Get all you can while you can. Let's eat, drink, and be glad for tomorrow when we die. That's the mantra of the age in which we live. And the truth is, church, it's been the mantra of the human race ever since Genesis chapter 3. So that's the, the spirit of the age and the mantra of the world. But that is not to be the mantra of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We are called to be different. We are called to be holy. We are called to be set apart wholly unto God, distinctly different from the rest of the world. Notice what Peter says in verse 12. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Here's something else that, that's really easy to skip over, but it, it's fascinating to me and it's interesting to me how Peter refers to the unbelieving world, those who would be outside of the church. He refers to them as as Gentiles. This, this word, uh, it can mean Gentiles, it can mean pagans. It generally refers in the Bible to anyone who's not a part of God's people. So in the Old Testament, for instance, if you were not a part of the nation of Israel, God's chosen and holy people in the Old Testament, then they would just lump you into this broad category of being a, a Gentile or a pagan. It didn't matter where you were from, the color of your skin, your socioeconomic background, your religious background. If you were not part of the nation of Israel, you were just a Gentile. So why is this important? Well, understand that what Peter's doing here is he's applying the terminology of Israel to the church, and this shouldn't surprise us because this is not the first time that he has done this. We are now God's chosen and holy people called to be set apart from the unbelieving world as we live as sojourners in this world. So as holy sojourners living among an unbelieving world, Peter says that we are called to keep our conduct honorable. Now I would draw your attention to that word honorable. This word that's being translated here, it also means beautiful. 
And it is actually a very beautiful word. It speaks of something attractively good, something that is so beautiful and so attractive that others have to have it when they see it. I've used this illustration before, I think, but uh, it applies. And so if you'll forgive me, I'll use it again. The illustration is of you out on the park on a, on a nice warm day, not warm like it was last week, but you know, like today, and, and, and you're, you're out there in the park and you see someone sitting on the bench across from you and, and they're, they're having an ice cream cone and they're, they're actually devouring that ice cream cone as you sit there and you, and you look and you can see they're, pardon me, but you know, they're doing this and it, and it really gets your attention and you can look and say, man, that ice cream cone must be really good. And the more you sit there and watch and watch and watch, you go, man, I really got to have that, that ice cream cone. It just looks really, really good and attractive to me. And so the next thing you know, you're going on down to the Baskin Robbins and you're getting your own ice cream cone. All right, that, that's the point here. As holy called out sojourners, church, there should be something beautiful and, and something attractive about us, uh, about our lives. And it, and it should be attractive and inspire others to embrace what we have. And that's exactly what Peter means here. So he goes on to say in verse 12, so that. Whenever you see the word or the phrase, so that, you know, just think of purpose for this reason, right? Keep your conduct beautiful. Live a beautiful life so that for this purpose, when they, who are they? They being the Gentiles, they being the, the outside, unbelieving world. So keep your conduct beautiful so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So when, when someone maligns you and says, well, so-and-so, they're a Christian and they're doing this, that, and the other, someone else might speak up and say, no, 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 that's not true. I've seen them devour the ice cream cone. And I, and I know that that's not true of them because I've seen it, I've witnessed it. They're living beautiful, beautiful lives. Peter here is clearly referencing the Sermon on the Mount. Did you catch it? Some of you may have caught it. He was quoting from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' teaching, Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. Jesus says to his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Then look at what he says. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so Jesus, Peter here is very clearly quoting and, and referencing Jesus' teachings there in the Sermon on the Mount. Should not surprise us. Peter was there. He had a front row seat. He heard the entire sermon. Could you imagine being there and hearing the sermon that now we're talking about 2,000 years later? He was there. He's clearly referencing it. But I do want to point out something else. Did you notice that Peter actually adds to the words of Jesus? Now, church, don't ever go and add to the words of Jesus. You don't have that authority, okay? But Peter does because Peter is writing as an apostle, an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And maybe Jesus said this as well. Maybe it's just not recorded for us. But Peter adds something very interesting here. He adds that phrase on the day of visitation. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven, right? So they may see your good deeds and praise God on the day of visitation. So he adds that. What's he talking about? 
He's referencing the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about end time salvation, that big word eschatological salvation that I referenced last week. All of that to say this. Peter's point here is, is so very clear. A kindergartner can get it, all right? What does he say? How we live, church, how we conduct ourselves among unbelievers, it matters. It matters. And not only does it matter, but it has eternal significance. We are to live beautifully in accordance with our calling in Christ for the purpose of winning some to salvation through our good works and through our good deeds. And that is exactly what Peter says here. Now, some people, they might object. They go, no, no, that can't be because it rubs up against their finely held theological prism. But I'm just going to tell you that, that when the Bible bumps up against your finely held theological prism, you need to go with the Bible and not your theological prism. This is exactly what Peter is saying. But don't take my word for it. I appeal to a higher power. Dr. Thomas Schreiner, who I, I believe he's got more letters after his name than I do, far smarter than I am. He's written a fantastic commentary on 1 Peter. He is probably the leading scholar and theologian in Southern Baptist life today. I believe his son is preaching down the road at Midwestern. But in his commentary, he makes this, this statement in regards to this verse. He says this, Because they observe such works, some unbelievers will repent and believe, and therefore give glory to God on the last day. Because they, they saw your beautiful life and they wanted to have it. They saw you eating the ice cream cone one day and they said, man, I got to have it. And they went out and they got it. This reminds me of the old adage. You ready for it? The old adage is preach the gospel, use words when necessary. Now, I got to tell you something. My wife, she's already over there. She's shaking her head. My wife absolutely hates that old adage. Preach the gospel, use words when necessary. And we have gone round and round and round throughout our marriage, you know, uh, regarding this. I've always thought that there's a, a b biblical truth behind the statement. And I think actually Peter kind of confirms that here. Preach the gospel, use words when necessary. But she's always hated it. I've always said, yeah, you know what, that, that's, that's pretty good. That's a good word right there. And in fact, when I went to seminary and I, I took an evangelism class in seminary, the very first day of class, the, the professor comes in to the classroom and he puts up on the board 10 viable definitions of evangelism. And this is one of them. And I was so full of myself, I couldn't wait to go home and tell Alina all about it. Nah, 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 boo, boo. I didn't do it like that. I was much more dignified. <laughs> Don't misunderstand. All right. At some point, words are necessary. My professor, my, my professor, <laughs> dang. It's two weeks in a row for an amen. So at some point, Words are necessary. I know that. My professor is well aware of that. The gospel must be communicated by words. Words are important, for sure. But, church, our words are hollow. They're absolutely meaningless. They fall on deaf ears if we are not living beautiful lives in Christ Jesus. 
in every facet of life, in business, in our marriages, at home, kids, when you go to school, what you do, how you conduct yourself, how you live your life, it matters. Reminds me of the story of the old lady. She was in a hurry one day. She got in her car and she was running late and boy, she was in a hurry and she was running down the road and she, she was getting mad at everybody who was getting in her way. And so she was weaving in and out of traffic. She was breaking every traffic law under the sun. She was shaking her fist at people. She was talking in sign language that she should not have been talking in. She was blaring her horn at people. She was weaving in and out of traffic and finally she's coming up to the intersection and there's a car in front of her and the light turns yellow and he slams on his brakes and she's of the mindset that yellow means go faster. So she was mad that he stopped and so she gets right up to his bumper and she's blaring the horn. She's still shaking her fist. She's using every curse word under the sun. All of a sudden, tap on the glass. It's an officer of the law. Ma'am, could you step out of the car? Steps out of the car, slaps the handcuffs on her, takes her on down to the precinct, fingerprints her, books her, puts her in a holding cell. She sits there for about an hour or so. Then the officer comes back and he says, man, I'm sorry, there was a great mistake. But I thought your car was stolen when I saw the chrome-plated Christian fish on the back of it and the what would Jesus do bumper sticker and the follow me to Sunday school bumper sticker, I just assumed that your car was stolen. It's obviously not a true story. Well, I don't know that it's obvious. It's probably not a true story. But the sad thing is, all too often, it's, it's true to life. It's true to life. The calling of our lives is to live beautiful attractive lives so that the the unbelieving world will see our good deeds and give glory to God on the day of visitation. Now, as Peter continues, all of that was just kind of the introduction for where he's going, all right? So as he continues, he explains what this looks like in specific situations. Now, this is not a full list of all the ways by which we can live beautiful lives in Christ Jesus. I could stand up here and wax poetically for the next six hours and maybe more on on all the ways by which we can live beautiful lives in Christ. We don't have time for that, but that's not where Peter's going. He has a, a couple of specific instances in mind. And so you'll notice in verse 13, he says, be subject, submit for the Lord's sake. Right, this is what he's calling you to submit to is for the sake of the Lord and for the glory of God. It's not for, for you. Remember, you don't live for yourself. You live for the glory of God. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And, and so Peter is calling his Christian audience, these are, these are Roman citizens, Probably, they're they're definitely living within the Roman Empire. There's no doubt about that. And he's calling them to submit themselves to the governing authorities of the Roman Empire. From Caesar to the governors, right on down the line. He wants them to be law-abiding citizens. He wants them to pay their taxes, obey the speed limit, obey the laws of the land. He also wants them, hey, don't be subversive, don't be a political 
revolutionist. That, that's really where he's going with this. He said, you know, you, you may not like the laws. You may not like the emperor, okay? But your Christian duty is to be a law-abiding citizen. Now, about nine years ago, I was a brand-new pastor and wet behind the ears, and I, I preached, I had the occasion to preach from the text where Jesus says, render under Caesar what belongs to Caesar and render under God what belongs to God, which was Jesus' way of, of telling his audience, pay your taxes to the evil Roman government, right? After that service, I got a visit from somebody in the church, church-going man, he comes up to me and he says, Walter, i got to tell you something. It's never a good thing after you preach. Well, Walter, I can tell you something. Okay, what is it? Walter, you need to know I don't pay my taxes. Really? That's very interesting in, in light of what Jesus just said there, in, in the light of how I just explained what Jesus just said. It's very interesting. Why, why, why do you not pay uh, your taxes? And, and he said, this, this is what he said. He said, because I, I do not agree with and the word is escaping my mind. <laughs> no. Welfare, that was the word. He said, I do not agree with welfare. I said, you don't agree with welfare. Interesting. Why? He said, because it's ungodly. That's exactly what he said. And I said, so you're telling me then, so what you're saying, what I'm hearing you say is that charity is ungodly. Would you please tell me a little bit more about this God that you claim to know and claim to serve? That's exactly what he said. What he was really saying was this. I don't agree with how the government spends my money, and so therefore I don't pay my taxes. And so I had to take that opportunity to explain to him one more time what I had just explained in the sermon before, and I'm going to take the opportunity to explain it to you now. When Jesus says... Render under Caesar that which belongs to Caesar and give unto God that which belongs to God. There, there's purpose in that. He's saying, hey, whose image is on this coin? Oh, Caesar's image is on the coin. Is your image on the coin? Your image is not on the coin. So therefore, that money is not yours. It belongs to Caesar. And so when Caesar comes to collect his money, since it's his, you give it back to him because it's his and it's not yours. The same thing is true. The other way around, he says, render under God that which belongs to God. Your image is not on the money, but someone's image is stamped in you and on you. And that is the indelible image of God. You're God. You belong to God. You're not God. You belong to God. You are God's. Every human being is created in the image of God. And so when God comes to collect that which is his, we are to give it back to him wholly and completely. Listen, when, when, when Jesus told his disciples, pay your taxes to Rome, he was saying, again, it's theirs. Give it to them. This is the most evil this is the, the most ruthless, most godless government regime ever known to man. And Jesus says, you can pay it to them because it's, it's his. And what he does with it is ultimately between him and God. Your duty is to submit to the word of God. Now, today, we don't render to Caesar, right? Actually, we do. We don't have Caesar, right? And Caesar's image isn't on our, our money 
But there are images on our money. George Washington, God bless him. Abraham Lincoln, God bless him. Andrew Jackson, is he? Yeah, Andrew Jackson. And then my personal favorite is Ben Franklin. Amen. Yeah, they're not Caesar, but they represent Caesar. They represent the government. And your image isn't on the money. My image isn't on the money. Those images are there to remind us that the money belongs to someone else. It's not mine. And it's not yours. And what the government decides to do with it ultimately is between the government and God. God will hold them accountable. And God will hold you accountable whether or not you submit to his word. So, church, understand, your money is not your money. That's what Jesus taught. And it's not your money because you are not of this world. You are a sojourner. You are just passing through. And while you are passing through this land as a sojourner, we are to obey the laws of the land. Let me see if I can illustrate being a sojourner this way. Imagine you take out a visa as an American and you want to go visit a foreign country. Let's use Russia as an example. I, I, lo- I would love to go to Russia one day. I know some of you have been to Russia. It's rich in history. I've known some Russian people, great people. I would love to go visit there sometime. Let's imagine that I take out a visa and I go visit Russia. All right. I, I want to be honest with you. I don't care for the emperor of Russia today. I don't think he's a particularly nice guy. He likes to throw people out of windows and, and poison them. And there's a lot of laws on the book, on the books that they have over there that I simply do not agree with. All right. I don't care for the emperor and I don't care for the laws of the land, but I'd like to visit the land. And so I take a visa and I go and I bet you while I'm there. No, I don't bet you. I guarantee you while I'm there, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to obey the laws of the land. I'm going to submit to the laws of the land and I'm going to honor the emperor of the land because I do not want to end up in a Russian gulag. Somebody better say amen. It's not where I want to go. Trust me, you don't want to go there either. All right, so, so here it is, church, with that illustration in mind. All right, think about it now. In the same way, I want you to get this. As American citizens, you've got to get this. The United States is not your home country. The United States is not your home country. You, I love my country, but this is not my country. You're just passing through like a tourist on a visa, and while we're here, We are expected to obey the laws of the land and submit to the governing authorities. Now, someone will raise their hand and they will object and they say, Well, Walter, we're supposed to obey God and not men. And I would simply say to you, Yes, you're right. (laughs) Obey God and not men. Men will lead you astray. Men will always lead you astray. Particularly those who are politically zealous, they will lead you astray. Obey God. Yes, I agree with that. And God is telling you to be a good citizen, to submit to the governing authorities as part of living a beautiful life in Christ. Jesus told his disciples to pay taxes and to obey the laws of the most ruthless, godless nation ever known to man. You think about that for just a moment, and that's a very true statement. You really can't argue that. I know it's hard for us to believe, but it's true. And so, beloved, you need to be very, very careful 
about playing the obey card and not men card. You need to be very, very careful about that. As Christians, we need to recognize that human governments exist within the sovereign will of God. God, in his, I don't have time to go to all the text. You can go to Romans 13 and read it later. But God, according to his sovereign will, permits and allows human governments and institutions to exist on this earth. And the primary reason why that is, is to maintain an order, a semblance of law and order, and to restrain sin. And some of you may laugh at that. You know, our government is restraining sin. Try to imagine a world without a government. And then you will see the full effects of sin. You've got to understand that these governments exist within the sovereign will and permission of God. We will only live this out as God intends us to live it out. When we come to terms with our status as sojourners, this world is not my home. This land is not my home. My citizenship is in heaven. Peter goes on to say, for this is the will of God, that you be a law-abiding citizen, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Roman citizens thought of early Christians as seditious, subversive. They were looking to overthrow the government. That's what he's talking about, all right? So for this is the will of God, that you be a law-abiding citizen, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of those who would make such charges. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. I know that as Americans, freedom is something that's very near and dear to us. We have an American understanding of freedom, but I just want you to understand, church, the American idea of freedom is not the same as the biblical idea of freedom. We love to, to fly the flag that says, don't tread on me. I can live however I want. Yes, that's what we say. And many times, that's what we do. Christian freedom is different. You will see there that our freedom is as servants of God. That word servants actually means slaves. Right? You're a slave to a master. Am I free in Christ? Yes, I am free in Christ. I've been freed from the law of sin and death, but I am not free unto myself. None of us are. At the end of the day, he's the master and I'm the slave. I cannot just live however I want to live. I have to submit myself to him and to his word. And in this case, that means submitting to the governing authorities. He says in verse 17, honor everyone, everyone. I don't, I don't care who they are. I don't care the color of their skin, their socioeconomic background, their, their gender identity, whatever it is, their political persuasion. They're worthy of honor and respect just by virtue of the fact that they are also an image bearer of God and creating the image of God. There's nothing uglier in this world than when Christians treat other people, people they don't agree with, when they treat them ugly. There's nothing uglier in this world than that. Peter says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, show the world by your love for the church, why the church is God's chosen people to bless the world. Show the world that by your love for the church. Fear God, all right, we get that, have reverent fear of God. And then, and then everyone's favorite, he says, honor the emperor. Somebody chuckled. <laughs> honor the emperor. We don't have an emperor today, praise be to God. Some of you might disagree with that. But we do have a president, and that's the, that's the application. That's how it applies to us. Now, I have to respect him according to God's word. That doesn't mean I have to like him. 
That doesn't mean that I have to like what he stands for. Certainly doesn't mean that I have to vote for him. But God's word says, honor the emperor. Respect him. And if I could just be honest with you, church, I would just say to you that we evangelicals particularly, we need to do a better job of honoring the emperor, especially when the emperor is not our guy. Because here's why. And the advent of social media makes it really easy for us to disrespect and to dishonor the emperor. I know I've engaged in it myself at times. But the world sees it. And the world knows it. And the world sees us drag the other guy through the mud and disrespect the other guy when it's not our guy. But then when our guy is there, the world sees us turn a blind eye and pretend that his faults don't even exist. And the world sees it. And the world sees it for what it is, church. The world sees it for what it is. Peter says, don't give them an excuse to speak evil against you. Don't even open the door for a moment. Keep your conduct beautiful as you live as a sojourner in a foreign country. Now, he, he switches gears just a little bit in verse 18. And he says, servants... Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Uh, servants here refers to household servants. They're, they're slaves in the Roman Empire. Slavery was different in the Roman Empire than what we're accustomed to. That doesn't make it right. It was just different. And many of these slaves would be considered professionals today, estate managers, teachers, tutors, even physicians. Let's understand that Peter is not defending the institution of slavery. Let's get that right, okay? He's simply acknowledging that slavery exists in the world in which he lives, and some slaves are Christians. And so now he's addressing these Christian slaves. How should these Christian slaves live in this world? The answer to that question is they should live as sojourners too. They also need to recognize that this world is not their, their home. Now he tells them to submit to their masters, to both those who are good and gentle and to those who are unjust. Just like we are to submit to the, the good and just government leaders and the unjust government leaders, right? We're all supposed to submit. This is what he tells them. Then he says in verse 19, for this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? So if you break the law, if, if you do something worthy of punishment, you know, whatever it, it is, then you're going to get what you deserve, we, we would say, right? But then he goes on to say this, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, well, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Well, you may wonder, well, how in the world is, is that gracious? Uh, being beaten for something I didn't do, how, how in the world is that gracious? Well, I, I don't think the beating and the injustice are what is gracious in God's sight. What is gracious in God's sight is a Christ-honoring response to injustice. When injustice happens to us and, and we respond in a Christ-honoring way, that is a gracious thing. Peter is once again appealing to the Sermon on the Mount. After Jesus says, let them see your good deeds, he goes on to tell them things like, turn the other cheek. Don't repay evil for evil. 
Don't harbor anger against those who mistreat you and harm you. So that applies to your, your masters or your employers, right? Don't resent this person. Don't plan your revenge. Trust in God. Hear me when I say that. trust in God. That's ultimately where he's going. Trust in God and in his justice. And church, this is true for all of us, for every Christian, whether we're a slave or not, because we are all slaves of Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen to that. That is biblical and that is true. He is our master. We serve him and we serve his will. And his will for us is not that we suffer unjustly. Please don't tell somebody when they're suffering unjustly. Please don't go to them like Job's friends and say, well, this must be God's will for your life. That's not very comforting. And I don't believe that's God's will for your life. God's will is that when injustice comes your way, and it will, so long as you are a sojourner, God's will for your life is that you trust him with the results and that you trust his providence, you trust in his justice, and you trust in his his grace. You have to trust that God will settle accounts. You have to believe that. As Christians, we are called to live that way and to believe that. We cannot balance the scales of justice. We cannot do that. Only God can do that. And we must leave it up to him We must trust in him. Now, this isn't just some pie-in-the-sky thinking. There is basis for such a response. He says in verse 21, For to this you have been called, to do good while suffering, to trust God in your suffering. This is what you've been called to do, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You see that there? He says, Christ is your example. And he gave you this example so that you might follow in his steps. The world will mistreat you. The world will accuse you of things that you have not done. The world may at times treat you harshly and unjustly. But guess what? They did the very same thing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And how did he respond? Did he repay evil for evil? No. What does Peter say? He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The greatest injustice this world has ever known, you will never suffer an injustice like this. The greatest injustice this world has ever known was when Jesus Christ hung on the cross. He committed no sin. He never broke the law. Never broke man's law. Never broke God's law. Yet he died a criminal's death on the cross. The gravest injustice under the sun. How did he respond? He never lashed out at those who treated him unfairly. He never returned evil for evil. He never returned insult for insult. He never threatened revenge, though he had an army of angels at his disposal. All he had to do was click his fingers. Boom. They'd be there. But that's not what he did. He trusted God in his suffering, and he trusted in God's justice. Church, you need to remember that in God's economy, justice delayed is not justice denied. You need to remember that in many, almost every area of life. There is coming a day, to tie it to what Peter is saying, there is coming a day when the people of this world will get their just desserts. The ungodly politicians of this world, they will get their just desserts. I promise you that. But you have to believe that. The same is true for the ungodly employers of this world. 
they will get their just desserts. Your job is to trust that, to believe that. As you pass through this world on a visa, as a sojourner, and you're only a sojourner because Jesus Christ stood in your place and took your sin and took what you deserve on the cross, which is where Peter goes. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He's not just our example. He's also our sin bearer. He took our sin, your sin, my sin, upon himself on the cross. By his wounds, oh, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, that we might live beautiful lives in Christ Jesus. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You may have picked up on this, these, these last few words, and I'm almost done. I'm running late. It's okay. Chick-fil-A is not going to serve lunch without you today. <laughs> these last few verses come from Isaiah, Isaiah 53, in which the prophet predicts the unjust suffering of Jesus Christ. 700 years in advance. Think how beautiful that is. God gives Isaiah a clear picture of the unjust suffering of Jesus Christ, your Savior. You think about Isaiah seeing a vision of Jesus flogged and beaten by the Roman soldiers, Jesus not threatening in return. You think about Isaiah seeing Jesus hanging on the cross, receiving insult after insult after insult, and Jesus crying out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And then think about Isaiah seeing a vision of Jesus standing before Pilate, the Roman governor Pilate, and not reviling in return. And I want you to remember specifically the conversation that Jesus and Pilate had on that day. And Pilate says to Jesus, so you're a king? And Jesus says, you've said so. Yeah, I'm a king. But I'm not the kind of king that you would expect. Why? Because he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. If my kingdom were of this world, my disciples would be political revolutionaries, but they're not. Because my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not from the world. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, church. His disciples are not supposed to be of this world either. And so this world is not our home. We are sojourners. We are exiles. We are foreigners who are just passing through on a visa. <laughs> We're making our way to a better country like, like Abraham, a heavenly city. That's where our possessions are. That's where our treasure is. And that's where our citizenship is as well. And so therefore, we must live like it as sojourners and, and exiles, just as the Lord Jesus Christ lived as a sojourner. Let, let, I'll just finish with this. It's just, I just want you to see the picture. Because Peter says, follow the example. Well, you do understand that Jesus was a sojourner. He lived as a sojourner. This, this world is not his home. He left the glory and perfection of, of heaven, the heavenly city, to take on human flesh, to come to this earth. And he sojourned on this earth for 30-some-odd years. 30 years. 
He lived under the authority of the Roman Empire. And he submitted to the authority of the Roman Empire, never breaking the law, man's law or God's law. He showed us the way. He lived a beautiful, beautiful life, church, as a sojourner in this world. And we are called to follow his example. Father, thank you so much for the example that you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ, who gave of himself completely. He came to this world, but he didn't put down roots in this world. We thank you that he came. We thank you that he took on human flesh. We thank you that he went to the cross and he took our sins upon himself on that cross. We thank you that he was buried and he was raised to life again. Thank you for the wonderful gift of salvation that we have through him. And I pray, Lord, that that we would take to heart the example that he has shown us and that we would rightly appropriate his grace in our lives by living for him and living for him alone as sojourners in this world. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand, church. We're going to sing one more song. It's a time of invitation. So if God is speaking to you in some way, I would encourage you to respond. You can respond right where you are. You can come down here and you can pray on these steps. I would be happy to pray with you. Maybe there's someone this morning, maybe you've never trusted and believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you've never come to the place where you've believed that, yeah, Jesus took your sin upon himself on the cross. I would encourage you to come forward today and and start on this journey of following Jesus Christ. It's not easy. Jesus told his disciples it wouldn't be easy, but oh, it sure is worth it. Whatever is on your heart, I would encourage you to come.